Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We'll read the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no. There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ongoing ministry to all of our hearts and souls and minds. Thank you for your amazing word, which speaks infallibly. And we're so thankful for the way in which it ministers to us. I pray that we would all be warned today by this passage. I pray that it would have its intended effect. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are working in our midst to bring that to pass. We commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I've been reading a book entitled The Seven Laws of Teaching by John Milton Gregory with the faculty here at Oak Ridge Christian Academy, our school. Gregory wrote the book originally for the purpose of training Sunday school teachers. But the book, it becomes evident from the book that the principles that he outlines there are applicable to anyone who engages in any sort of teaching, and for that matter, any sort of learning, which means it encompasses all of us. All of us in some way, shape, or form are engaged in learning and engaged in teaching. Now, in each law that Gregory provides, he provides a simple yet profound definition. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the simplest stated things that can have the biggest impact on us if we'll think about it long enough. He reminds us of what is essential or at the core of the aspect of teaching or learning for that matter. This past month, I talked with the faculty about the law of the learner. And so what does it mean to learn? What figures at the center of learning? What is, the, what is absolutely necessary in order for someone to learn? Because we all would recognize there's a difference between someone who is teaching and the person who actually learns anything, right? Someone could go on and on and on, and meanwhile, a person not learn a thing. So what is the necessary quality for someone to be a learner? Gregory states the following. The learner must attend with interest to the material to be learned. The learner must attend with interest to the material to be learned. So two words that really stand out in that definition are the words attention and interest. Attention and interest. Those two qualities are intertwined. We give our attention to the things that interest us. And quite often, the things that we attend to, if not immediately, at least eventually, become things that we are interested in. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't give it attention anymore, right? So attention and interest are kind of intertwined, and you have to have them in order to be in the position of learning. If you're not interested in what's being said, you will not listen to it. If right now you don't love Jesus, you have no desire to know more about God, then this whole time will just be a talking mouth, you will not listen. You'll have ears listening, but you won't have ears to hear. Someone who has attention also has interest, and the person who has interest shows attention to the thing that they're interested in. To learn something, you have to bring the thing that you're learning into the focus of your mind. You have to focus upon it. Now, there can be different levels of attention, and even Gregory speaks to these. There's that passive sort of attention that all of us um, are acquainted with. It's that kind of attention that requires no effort of our will. We don't have to decide to give it attention. 
It just draws our attention. And there's a lot of things like that in the world that we live in today where the thing that has the most sensory output is the thing that we are drawn to. You see this especially with children. Children will usually, their attention will swing from one thing to the other, whatever one is drawing upon their attention the most, the most stimulating thing that they are coming in contact with. But unique to the growth and maturity in a human being is that we can actively choose what we will focus upon. We can actively choose to attend to one thing and disregard another thing. This is part of what it means to grow up. It's part of what it means to learn to become educated is you learn how to focus upon something and think about it deeply. Every time your mind wants to wander, bringing it back. It starts to wander, bringing it back. It's kind of like a dog on a leash, right? Just keep sucking the dog back to where you are instead of wants to run off on its own. This is what we call, what I call active attention, where we actively choose by a matter of the will what we give our attention to. This is when we have this determined focus, even when there's temptation to think about something else, to become specifically attentive to one thing. Then he says that there's a third type of attention. He says, this is the blessed state of affairs when someone comes to the place where they give attention to something because they become so absorbed in that thing. It's like, you know, you could remove them from the job that they're doing, but they would still do that thing. You know, this is, like I think, one of the best cases where you identify, for example, a deacon within a church. Um, you find a man who's already doing the very things that you'd look for in a deacon. In other words, he would do it whether he was given the title or not, because he's just that kind of person. Um, there's that kind of attention that can happen where I don't have to sit over you or sit over a student. If a student really loves, for example, that teach it, chemistry, I don't have to sit over and go, okay, now study your chemistry, study your chemistry, look at your chemistry, keep reading your chemistry, study your chemistry, study. I don't have to do that to somebody who loves it. If you enjoy it, if you're interested in it, nothing stops you from looking into it. It's funny, in a day and age where we have you know, increased occurrences of ADD and ADHD and all the rest, a lot of times those same kids will watch you know, a video game for five hours straight and have no problem giving it attention. You see, attention is something, if we find interest in something, we will attend to it. We'll give our attention to the things that thrill our hearts, the things that we find beautiful and entertaining and enjoyable, fun, exciting. We will attend to those things. You see how interest and attention come together. I went to the eye doctor a couple weeks ago. I lost my glasses and had to get a new prescription and get some new glasses. And I experienced something new while I was at the appointment. Without performing any amount of eye dilation, which I was super excited about, they had a technological device, maybe you've already had this before, that was able to take a picture of my eye and show me the retina of my eye without having to go through dilation and all the rest. It scanned my eye in full color in just a matter of you know, a millisecond or so. The doctor then showed me a picture of the back of my eye, uh, eyes, and he explained to me what he saw. What caught my eye, well, forgive the pun, was, was the oval-shaped um, center in center of my eye that had like a, kind of looked yellowish. Everything else kind of looked red, but there was this little spot that looked more yellowish. And at first I was like, uh-oh, is that a problem? And he said, oh, no, that's called the macula. You've probably heard of macular degeneration before. It usually happens with somebody who's a little bit older and they lose the ability to focus upon things and this kind of idea. He said, that part of the retina contains the largest amount of cone cells in the eye. It's responsible for that central high-resolution vision. It's the part of the eye which gives us, hopefully, 2020. And for us, for some of us, not close to that. But 2020 with correction. That's the, that's the part, whenever we focus on something, that's the part of the eye. And it's a tremendously small part of the retina. Most of the retina is just for general awareness. Most of the retina just helps us with just seeing things in general. But whenever I focus upon something, it is the macula that is engaged in that ability. It's amazing that we can take in so much information with our eyes within seconds and shift attention from one thing to another one in rapid succession. We can shift our attention from one thing to another very, very quickly. And what can be a wonderful blessing can also be a tremendous curse as it becomes difficult sometimes to focus in such an environment where there's visual stimulation all around us. Now, whether we see well or not so well or not at all, perhaps someone is blind, the phenomenon that we experience with vision is true of our mind's attention as well. Several things can be generally considered together. We can consider several concepts together in our minds and how they relate to one another. But we have difficulty really focusing on more than one thing at once. I say especially men. Have a real hard time focusing on more than one thing at once. 
We have to shift our attention from one thing to another and then consider how those might fit together. Now, that ability to shift focus is, like I said, both wonderful and troubling. For we realize that one of our largest struggles that we're up against is giving our attention to the right things in a world that's always vying for our attention in less than profitable ways. We live in a world that would love to just draw our attention away from what really is valuable, what really is true, good, and beautiful, to that which is ugly, to that which is not profitable at all. We can become easily distracted. Let me give you a little test. Have you ever read a book and read a page or a couple and your eye went over every word, but your mind didn't read a thing? Ever been there before? You're like, I just read that chapter, and I have no idea what I just read. It's always like a disheartening moment, isn't it? As we're like, oh, no, now, now, this is the moment, right? This is the moment of truth. Do you actually go back and read it? Or do you just go, well, I'll just move on and see what happens. I'll see if I can figure, pick it up later on. You see, that sort of thing can happen. Our eyes might travel word to word, but our mind has traveled to another country. But the, So part of the thing that thwarts our attention is distraction. We can be distracted by all sorts of things. And Jesus wants to point out some of the distractions that will keep us from giving attention to what we really should. But maybe the evil stepsister to distraction is apathy. Apathy. What prevents someone from being able to focus? Well, they're either easily distracted or distracted by many different things, or they're apathetic. They just don't care. Sometimes that not caring comes from a multitude of sources. Maybe they're fatigued. Maybe they're tired. You know, this is the kind of shutoff that maybe some of you engage in. I'm sure no one in this room ever has a moment where they come home from work after a day and they go, I'm exhausted. I just want to sit down on the couch and watch TV, right? TV is a classic passive attentive thing. You do, no, there's no energy. You just allow it to just give you whatever it's got. And the sad thing about that is that can be a really horrible place for us to be uh, giving our attention. But... Nonetheless, sometimes apathy can cause this sort of thing to occur. It can arise from fatigue, but it can also arise from just sheer disinterest. I just don't care about that thing. You know, maybe somebody's going on and on about a car engine, and maybe for you, you love cars, and that just thrills you. To somebody else who doesn't, it's like, oh, man, anything else but this, right? I'm sure you've had moments like that where there's just this subject or of, of some sort that just doesn't interest you at all. So apathy and distraction are really difficult and push against our ability to be attentive to something. So why discuss this here and now? Why am I bringing up all of this? Well, certainly any time there's preaching, there's teaching and learning going on. So it's helpful to be reminded of this, that we have to purposefully attend to the things that really matter. And sometimes, guys, that means hard work. I, I, I want you to understand that I know that sitting where you are is a hard job. The job of preaching has its own difficulties, but listening to preaching is also a hard job. It takes labor. It takes, it, there's toil. I've gone off to preaching conferences before where, you know, they do several sermons in a day. We'll listen to like three, four, five preachers in a day. And at the end of the day, I'm exhausted and I've just been sitting there. But here's the point. I haven't just been sitting there. And neither are you, hopefully. It takes a lot of energy to purposely remove distractions from our mind and focus in on what really matters. Certainly, growing in our relationship with God involves us being attentive to Him, to give our attention to the things of Him, giving our attention to His Word. Think of any relationship that you have. How well does the relationship go if you never give it any attention? How well does it go? Uh, married couples, how well does your marriage function when neither spouse is attending to one another? How well does that work? When neither listens to one another, when neither actually cares about what's going on with one another. In all of our relationships, we have to, if we really love the person, we're going to attend to them. We're going to focus upon them. We're going to listen to them. I know I have definitely been guilty of a time or two, hopefully it's only a time or two, it's maybe been many more than that, in which my wife's been talking to me and I'm not looking at her. And so she asked me, please look at me while I'm talking to you because she knows how I am and that my mind is probably somewhere else if I'm not looking and focusing and attending to what she has to say. Certainly, attention is so crucial in any relationship. So it's good to be reminded of this in our relationship with the Lord. We have to attend to him. We need to focus upon what he's told us and listen very carefully. But it's also important 
to this morning because it fits very well with the exhortation that Jesus gives here after he has completed here the Olivet Discourse. He's here at the end of talking on the Mount of Olives, and he's given a bunch of description, for those of you who've been around with us for several weeks, about what's going to happen both in, I would say, the immediate future for them around AD 70 when Roman come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple, but also there's some forward-looking things that are things that we haven't even yet experienced, things that would push towards the end of history, the consummation of all things. So he wraps up, though, all this discussion with several repeated commands and illustrations, and they're all pressing forward the point he really wants us to get. At the end of listening to anything, you know, you have that question, like, so what? You know, how do I apply this? What's the reason for all of this? And certainly we know that Jesus' Olivet Discourse has become the occasion for much, much argument about the end times. How is this all going to play out? And many people got in all kinds of arguments about that. But one of the questions we need to, and I'm saying that there's a place for that and a place for discussion of that nature. But however, what is Jesus driving at? What should be all of our response to what he said here? Well, I don't know if he could make it any more emphatic. He gives commands about it, and then he gives several illustrations about it a couple of which we're going to look at here together. I can sum it up with this phrase, pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention. Another way it can be translated is keep watch. Keep watch, pay attention. I think it's an appropriate language, especially for people of our generation, which attention is so easily diverted every which way. We really need to hear this. And in order to hear it paradoxically, you have to give it attention. <laughs> so we have to ask you to give your attention while we talk about giving our attention. His words caution us to neither become apathetic nor distracted and wa- waiting and watching for him to come back. So in a sermon entitled Pay Attention, I want to consider three points with you this morning, each in turn. And we're going to do this, one from Luke, one from Mark, and one from Matthew. We had all three read here this morning. And I want to focus on a different aspect of attention with each one. I'll give you all three right now, and then we'll focus in on each one individually. First of all, we'll look at attention and watchfulness. Watchfulness, by watchfulness, I mean concentrated focus. So attention and watchfulness. Secondly, we'll look at attention and faithfulness, which is being consistent with responsibilities we've been granted. And thirdly, attention and readiness, being continually prepared. So let's first of all together contemplate attention and watchfulness, concentrated focus. We see this being highlighted for us in Luke 21. If you want to turn to Luke 21, you can. He says here, attend or watch yourselves, lest your hearts be burdened with drinking and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all the ones dwelling upon the whole face of the earth. But keep watch. There it is again. Pay attention at all times. Praying that you may, be over, you may overpower or prevail. To escape all these things, the things that are about to happen, and to stand before the Son of God. This command, look out, keep watch, be vigilant, pay attention. The command is given multiple times. It's kind of like, you know, I think about sometimes maybe you've had a moment like this in your own home where you're talking to the children and you say, pay attention, keep watch, be vigilant, listen to me, right? That repeated command, because you understand that all of us are really just children a little bit older. We need to have this repeated to us as well. Two times it happens in Luke 21, three times it happens in Mark 13, and once it happens in Matthew 25. So here we have a total of six times that we can count where this phrase is being used for us. Pay attention. Wake up. Keep watch. Look out. Be vigilant. That is the thematic point of connection here. All the Gospels conclude with this instruction from Jesus, he intends for his prophetic words to have the application that all of us would be attentive. He wants us to be put on alert status. Let's ask a few questions about this alert. Let's do a Q&A on this. What are we to watch over? Well, plainly stated, watch yourselves, it says here in Luke 21. Watch yourselves. Ourselves? We have to watch ourselves. Another way to be translated is take great care with yourself. In order to take great care with yourself, you have to admit something about yourself. You'll never take great care with yourself if you don't admit who yourself is. And in this case, that we easily fall into apathy and distraction. We suffer often from an overestimation of our own abilities and an underestimation of the enemy's abilities. We suffer from that often. 
We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think often. But the man who understands that about himself will then watch himself in this regard. Jesus cautions us to remember the importance of our own souls. Paul himself explained that after he was done preaching to others, he was concerned that he himself not become disqualified. Due to the weakness of the flesh and the power of the enemy that we're up against, we have to be on the alert. This is why we have statements about the devil being described as a lion seeking someone to devour. He's out to get individuals. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Guard your heart. Be careful with your heart. Well, what will impede our watch? We're supposed to watch ourselves. What will stand in the way of that? Well, the next verse, the rest of this verse tells us, Beware of things that will desensitize you to spiritual realities. Jesus gives three words here that can be reduced into two categories because the first two words kind of describe the same situation. First two words is dissipation and drunkenness. The word dissipation can be translated partying, drinking. Also, some have translated hangover. You see how these fit together. Drunkenness and hangovers or parties. Don't indulge in fleeting things, Jesus says. Drunkenness, don't get lulled into a stupor. You see, some people run to alcohol as a means of escape. They drug themselves into feeling less of the troubles that they're facing. Rather than facing troubles, they try to escape from the troubles by use of some chemical alteration. Let me be clear that the Bible does not forbid the moderate use of wine. See Psalm 104, which speaks of wine and how it gladdens the heart. Paul recommends to Timothy a little wine for his stomach, even for, if it's for medicinal purposes. Don't forget that Jesus in his first miracle turned water into wine. Um, so all of this, I'm not saying that any drink is sin. What I am saying, though, and the Bible is very clear about, is that drunkenness is sin. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Ephesians 5.18 is one such example. You see, drunkenness is not only sin because of what it does to a person, but it's also sin because of what it prevents a person from doing. It has a desensitizing influence, which prevents people from getting ready for the day of their death or for the end of the world. It numbs your faculties when you need your faculties fully engaged. How many of you would advocate intense drinking to anyone who's involved in a job involving watchfulness? You say, okay, hey, you sit up on the guard tower and here's a bunch of beer while you're up there. Is that what you want to give that watchtower guy? No, right? You're like, I want you to be as clear-minded as possible while you're watching over the city. Or how about a lifeguard up on his stand? Do you like him drinking a bunch of beer while he's watching a whole bunch of children swimming in the pool? Not at all, right? It would not be appropriate at all. Certainly wouldn't be appropriate in situations like this any more than we would want our surgeon right before he does surgery on us to be drunken, right? We'd say, all cases, we need all of his faculties there. My life is at stake right here, right? That's what we're thinking about. Well, if that's the case, if we who know Christ know that eternal life is at stake, what place do we have getting drunk? You see, it's not just what it does to us, but it's what it prevents us from engaging in. It's when our faculties are numb that we're not able to give to others what we otherwise would be able to. Beware of anything by that matter that stupefies the mind when it most needs to be engaged. The best thing is for us to be affected by circumstances around us. That way we can respond by asking the Lord for strength. We should be going to Jesus for help, not going to the bottle for help. Similarly, though, you can get drunk on other things in a metaphorical fashion. You can escape from life in in very harmful ways that don't involve alcohol. Some people indulge in shopping or entertainment like TV or video games or romance novels or eating or exercise even. Other sides of these, you can go extremes either way, where that becomes everything to you, where you become drunk on those things and neglect things that are more needful. This is why the Apostle Paul can say that exercise has a place, it has value, but it doesn't have eternal value like a relationship with God does. Spiritual discipline is far greater and far more important. There's a continual danger of getting swept up in intoxicating things that are all around us. We're called instead to focus upon Jesus 
and to find that our, th- our find our thinking involved in deeper things rather than in more shallow things. We must beware of these. We must also beware of other distractions. And this text brings us out as well. He, the second form of things he says is distraction. The worries of this life translate by some. Otherwise, others translate this the cares of this life. You see, just as a person can fritter away their life with indulgence, a person can also worry themselves to death. You can fault be at fault by being so laid back and indulgent, but you can also be at fault by being so high strung. Cares of this life certainly involves not only things that you might be fearful of happening, but just everyday sorts of things. Sometimes, let me challenge you with this, especially when you're coming to New Year. Sometimes we make decisions which add great complexity to our lives. Sometimes we make a decision without thinking about all of the repercussions of that decision that add great complexity to living, thus bringing untold distraction to our lives. For example, when you consider a new job, you need to think about how that job affects your spiritual growth. What hours will be required in the job that I'm about to take? And how will that affect my family life? How will that affect my devotional life? How will that affect my ability to go to church, for example? When we're considering buying a home, we need to think about the financial outlay of that decision. And when that decision is made, what impact will that have on the rest of my life? Will it mean I have to get 18 jobs in order to supply for this house? It's kind of an interesting thing. You can do this with cars. You can do this with any possession, for that matter. Possessions are interesting things because sometimes possessions end up owning us rather than us owning them. Be careful regarding that. And here's the challenge I have for all of us. Why don't you really think about this? How can you further simplify your life this year? What can you do in your life that will simplify life, allow you to spend more time in spiritual directions, more time in the Word, more time in prayer, more time among the fellowship of the saints? What can you do to make that happen? What can you do to ease the number of cares that you're carrying? Sometimes the best thing to do is just sell the car, downsize the house, get a different job. Sometimes that's what we need to do, and we will remove the cares of this life in a huge way. Now, I'm not saying that you can completely remove them. I mean, we all still live here in the meantime, so there's going to be cares, but there's a difference between someone who's overloaded with cares, weighed down. It says, your heart weighed down with cares. And I think we all know the difference between those two things. And I'm sure we've all experienced moments, if not even right now, in which our hearts feel weighed down with cares of this world. What can we do to simplify life such that that wouldn't be the case? You see, as long as we're in the waiting, there's going to be earthly concerns that we have to handle. However, how can we free our hearts rather than weigh them down? And that's a continual discussion you need to have between you and the Lord and you and your family. What can we do to free up our hearts rather than burden our hearts? I kind of chuckle when somebody buys a brand new, you know, really, really fancy, really, really expensive car, and then they start parking like 18,000 miles away from the mall. And they walk 18,000 miles because they don't want anyone to touch the brand new car. It's like, at some point, it's like, who owns who here? You know, who has changed whose life here? Um, So let's just think about that. Watch out for that sort of distraction, removing your attentiveness. You see, what can happen is you become so concerned with, okay, my stocks and my bonds and this and that and all the rest, and pretty soon you're, not, you're no longer thinking about spiritual realities. You're not living for here and now rather than living for the life to come. This is the sort of thing that can distract us away from being attentive and watching for Jesus' return. Well, when should we watch out like this? Well, all the time. All the time. R.C. Ryle calls it perpetual preparedness. We need to be in a state of perpetual preparedness. Why? Jesus says because he's going to return at any time. And we don't know when he's going to return. He says, and those who are not prepared when he returns, it's going to come on them like a trap. Now, I just had an interesting, you know, unique situation of this in my own house with other nine sitting with my wife. And lo and behold, a rat goes running through our house and into our bedroom. Uh, suffice it to say, the whole rest of the evening was, was filled with much screaming. And my wife said something, too. Um, but anyway, so we finally were able to catch, we catch the rat and with a lot of help from outside sources. And when the rat was gone, we, just, we determined that we had to get some rat traps. And so I went and searched, researched these things on you know, Amazon, where everyone researches things. And we got rat traps and mouse traps. 
Well, as I got them, then I was demonstrating their effectiveness to my children. And I will say I did not get my finger caught in there. I would have been gone if I had. Um, those things are crazy fast and crazy strong. And I just had a huge warning thing with my kids. Do not touch the trap. If we have the trap out, don't get anywhere close to the trap. Have I said it again? Watch out for the traps. Stay away from the traps. Doing this sort of thing. Now, if I would go into that kind of detail with some rat and mouse traps, how much more do you think it would be important for us to hear this warning about the great day of judgment? When that day comes, it will be far more fierce than a rat trap springing on your finger or your toe. It will involve your eternal destiny. Jesus says, watch out for what is to come. How can we maintain watchfulness? Jesus tells us the means. How does this happen? By prayer. By prayer. Jesus directs us to prayer. Now, how does prayer and watchfulness relate to one another? In order to wait faithfully, one has to depend upon God, and that dependence upon God will show itself in prayerfulness. A person who is not prayerful is depending upon themselves. A person who recognizes they must depend upon the Lord is a person who is also extremely prayerful. Our confidence must not rest in ourselves, but in our God. And so if we're going to be watchful, we will be prayerful people. The pressure that is ahead of Jesus' disciples is such that it's beyond their ability to handle. It's outside of their control. So they need to go before the Lord in order to be able to struggle patiently and consistently and persistently and to actively wait and watch while they await the return of Jesus Christ. We need this divine empowerment. We need help from on high. What's the ultimate goal in our watching? What are we trying to do? Well, Jesus says that you might prevail, that you might overcome that you might escape the things that are about to happen. In other words, he's saying that you might have safety here and that you might stand before the Son of God, that you might arrive home. They might have safety here and arrive home. You might be preserved from the things of this world and be preserved for the things of the next world, of the world to come. Philip Ryken says, To stand before the Son of God is an expression that comes from the courtroom and indicates a favorable verdict. Here it serves a reminder that when we appear before God at the final judgment, we will be qualified to stand in his holy presence by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says here that we might stand in his presence. Well, how is that possible? Well, he says this is pulling upon judicial language to say that we stand blemishless, clean, forgiven. How is this possible? Well, the paradoxical truth of the gospel is that the only way you can be made worthy is if you recognize you're not worthy. The only way you can be made righteous is by recognizing you're unrighteous you see the only way you can enjoy true spiritual riches is if you admit that you're actually spiritually bankrupt it's once you recognize that you're weak that you can be made strong this is because the message of the gospel is to trust in jesus as our hero as our champion as our savior as our lord it's by faith in him that we can stand before him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing Our scarlet sins can be made white as snow because Jesus shed his blood for our forgiveness. We can stand in God's presence in white garments because the robe of Jesus' righteousness has been placed on our backs. We have confidence of right standing because Jesus died and he rose again, conquering sin in the grave. You see, this is what we're after. This is what our mind is attentive to. This is what we're focused upon. Watchfulness requires this sort of consistent focus. Upon Jesus. We turn over to Mark 13 for point number two. In Mark 13, we come to the first of two illustrations I want to look at. We'll look at one here in Mark 13, and we'll look at one in Matthew together. But in Mark 13, we read the following, verses 33 through 37. Look, keep watch. There it is again, that instruction. For you do not know when the time is. Is a man away on a journey, leaving his house and giving his slaves the authority, each his work, and commands the doorkeeper that he might keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, for you do not know when the Lord of the house will come, whether evening or midnight or crowing of the rooster or morning. Thus coming suddenly, he might find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to you all, keep watch. So Jesus offers here an analogy to help us consider the situation. There's a household that's left to then uh, to care for things while the master is away on a journey. We get here a taste of attention and faithfulness. And what it looks like in Mark is consistent responsibility. A person who is at attention to the Lord is a person who is faithful to the Lord, who is consistently fulfilling his or her responsibilities while the Lord is away. 
There's a delegation of responsibility that the master, when the master departs. The Lord of the house is about to go on a journey, and so he sets things in order before he leaves. He gives certain responsibilities within the household, and he gives, with that, with that uh, responsibility, he gives the authority for those individuals to perform within the household. And then he tells the doorkeeper to keep watch. So it is, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he first set things in order. He gave gifts to men. He gave particular gifts to each and every individual who knows him as Lord and Savior. And he's gifted you with the specific purpose of edifying the entire body. He wants you to use the peculiar and unique gift that God has given you to the edification, to the building up of the body of Christ. What's so fascinating is that God expects each of us to use the gifting that he's given us to impact one another, which will result in a mature man. And here, mature man means the entire congregation is built up and made into a mature man. It's a good reminder that the time of waiting is not a time of inactivity. Waiting isn't sitting on the couch twiddling our thumbs. (laughs) Waiting in Christian context is full-on service to our King and our Lord. The time of the Master's return is unknown, God has purposefully withheld the time in which Jesus will return to us. He's purposely not revealed this to us. It reminds me of Proverbs 25, 2. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. You see, God informs us for his good purposes, and God keeps things in the dark for his good purposes. In this case, the whole idea is that we would, in the meantime, not knowing the day or hour of Jesus' return, knowing that he could come at any time, what position does that place us in as his servants? How do we want to be found when he returns? Faithfully serving, right? I mean, the last thing you want in the world, let's say your boss you know, gives you a task for the day, goes off and says, you know, I'll, I'll see you later on. And so you're working feverishly you know, for the first you know, four hours. And then all of a sudden, the fifth hour, you go, oh, I'm going to take a break. And you're sitting back and relaxing. And then your boss shows up, right? Now, at that moment, what are you thinking? Oh, man, I wish I'd kept working, right? Because now it looks like I've just been slothful the whole time. How does someone make sure that when the boss shows up that they look like they're doing stuff? Uh, Always do stuff, right? Always be engaged in the thing that you've been given. Faithfully discharge your responsibility all the time. Then you know whenever he arrives, you'll be ready for his coming. Since the master's return could be any time The only way you can be sure that your master will find you doing what you're supposed to when he returns is to always be doing what he told you to do. Certainly, we don't want to be found sleeping in such a case. Yeah, again, this is akin to how good is a watchman who's up in the tower and he keeps dedicated watch for 23 hours, but for one hour he sleeps. How, How well does that go for the city if it should be that the enemy comes in that 23rd hour. How about air traffic control towers? Now, eh, you know, I think we're just going to shut down for a while. Just take a break right in the middle of the day. That's not going to go well for a whole lot of planes. So consistent resp- fulfillment of responsibility. That's what attentiveness looks like. So it looks like a, a, a focus, but it also looks like fulfilling the responsibilities that God has given us. Now we make our transition to the third point. Attention and readiness. And we see this in Matthew 25. This is the famous parable of the the ten virgins. And I already read it here this morning, so I'm not going to reread the whole thing right now. But we see here attention and readiness in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and the importance of continual preparedness. Continual preparedness. Now, you have to under, in, under, in order to understand this parable, you have to understand a little bit about the different cultural situation that they were in to, from our own. Matthew Henry provides a pretty good background to the situation. First of all, the designation here of virgins is a word that's used to describe young women who are not married yet. Okay? They're young women who are not married yet. The, the closest parallel we could get to the, in this story is imagine that these virgins are bridesmaids. Okay? They're attendants to the bride. So these ten young women who are friends of the bride who are involved in this story. Now, it was custom among the Jews that the bridegroom would come accompanied by his friends late at night to the house of the bride where she was then uh, attended by bridesmaids who, on notice given that the, the groom was coming, there'd be a shout or a trumpet or this sort of thing, she would send out her bridesmaids to go meet the coming groom. 
And being at night, they would go out with fanfare, and that means with lamps, you know, lighted lamps, and they would then escort him to the bride. Some believe that then the bride would be picked up from her household, and then there would be a procession through the streets of the city until they got back to the groom's house, where then the festival and festivities would commence. So just understanding a little bit of their cultural expression of weddings, weddings were things that you'd have um, a considerable time of betrothal. And over the betrothal period, the relationship was such, it wasn't like our engagement. It was like as if you were married, so much so that you'd have to get actually a written certificate of divorce in order to break off that betrothal. So it was that serious. Once you're betrothed, it was like a sure deal. Um, And then when the marriage was consummated, a lot of times the, the timing of it, there was a general indication of when it was coming, but it wasn't like save the date, here's the date, and it's going to happen. A lot of times it was semi-unannounced. And the announcement came through the streets as they made this procession, and everyone came running for the festivities. Now, Jesus presents ten virgins, ten young women, who are expecting the bridegroom's arrival. But he indicates that there are five of them that are foolish and five of them that are wise. What's the distinction between the two groups? They both have lamps. They're both looking for the bridegroom, but one group brings oil and the other does not. Now, the apparent wisdom and foolishness of each group isn't manifested until a little bit later. At first, everything looks the same. They all have lamps and they're all there waiting for the moment. Now, we're told the bridegroom is delayed. We don't know why, but in the meantime, everyone falls asleep. Now, it's interesting that in this case, Jesus doesn't seem to rebuke their sleep here. Uh, We do need to be reminded that humans do require sleep. And if this party was going to go late into the evening, maybe a power nap was the need of the hour. But these, those who are ready for Jesus' return, or in this case, for the bridegroom to come, they're prepared. Their watchfulness can even be experienced while sleeping. The problem for the foolish ones is that their sleep is truly foolish. They have no business sleeping when they're not ready to respond to the summons. See, there's the distinction. I agree with MacArthur who said this. The sleep of the foolish bridesmaids might suggest their false confidence, whereas the sleep of the prudent ones could suggest their genuine security and rest in the Lord. Those who are prepared can sleep well. Those who are not prepared should sleep awful. Right? If you know that you're secure in the Lord, when he returns, you're going home to be with him for all eternity, then you can sleep well. If you know all that has to come for you is fearful expectation of judgment in hell for all eternity, how do you sleep well? How do you sleep well with that reality over your head? So a cry then comes in the middle of the night. Behold, the bridegroom, come to meet him. The five wise women here all get up. They trim their lamps. By the way, there's discussion about what these lamps actually look like. Some, either way, we've got poles, but some would argue that they were some sort of kind of um, uh, cup-shaped device that held oil in which a wick was then placed, and then they would light that lamp. Okay? And so in this case, when they trimmed their lamps, it would be a reference to the trimming of that wick and making sure it was all set and then lighting it ablaze. Others argue that these are just cloths that are dipped in oil and wrapped around a pole, kind of like a torch. So either way, we've got some sort of device for holding flame, oil, and fire. And the wise virgins are all set and ready to go. But the foolish ones were told their lamps were flickering out. And they asked the wise ones for oil because they recognized that they didn't have enough. Now, to have a lamp but no oil is kind of like bringing a flashlight with no batteries, right? It looks okay from the outside, but you're not going to actually get what's required from it. Why didn't the foolish virgins bring oil for their lamps? You ask the question, why this foolishness? Certainly you would recognize that you needed oil, right? I mean, these these women knew that they needed oil, right? Uh, Was it just negligence? Did they just suffer from lack of thinking? Were they distracted by other things? I mean, wasn't this the only thing that should be on their minds? I mean, what else do they have going on? Shouldn't this be the thing that they're attending to? Could it be some sort of false reliance? Did they think, well, whenever he comes, we can just quickly run to the store and get some? Or assuming that the bridegroom was going to come at a decent hour... Or do they think they could just rely upon someone else's preparation when the time came? We don't really know. We do indicate, we get indicated for us that they do ask a question to the wise ones, right? Saying, hey, could you spare us some oil? 
For some reason, they didn't sense the need for personal responsibility nor consider the time in which the bridegroom would arrive. They were careless. They were guilty of inexcusable and senseless neglect. They were short-sighted. They were thoughtless. Here is a case in which thoughtlessness has great consequences. You ever heard of that? You know, people are like, well, that's my excuse. I just didn't think about it. Or, like, well, thoughtlessness is a problem. To not think about what you should think about is a problem. Now, you may think that those wise virgins were a little selfish. Right? They asked, the, the foolish virgins asked for some oil, and the wise ones say, no, you can't have any. And the reason why they say is they say because there won't be enough. The question is, shouldn't they have shared? Shouldn't they have shared the oil? But you see, if the oil that the wise virgins had was divided, there wouldn't be sufficient oil to keep torches ablaze for the whole festivity. It would result in failure for all. There would be no torches while en route to wherever they were going, and the whole ceremony would be a disaster. It was another sign of the wise virgin's preparedness. They knew how important it was to have oil on hand, and they knew how much oil they needed to have in order for this to be successful. They had a responsibility to fulfill, and they must fulfill that responsibility. This is a great lesson for all of us, that there are some things in which you cannot depend upon someone else's preparedness for. You have to be personally responsible. It's like in a school class, a person can't depend on somebody else's test score. For their grade. They must be personally responsible for their own work. And like physical life, spiritual life is, is a direct gift from God. It's non-transferable. I cannot grant someone spiritual life any more than I can exchange physical years of my life to somebody else. Having received salvation myself doesn't make me the Savior. All I can do is point others to Jesus. He's the one and only Savior. He's the only one that can help. You see, you cannot rely on someone else's preparedness. You yourself must be personally, individually prepared. So the foolish virgins travel into town to get some more oil. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. They go into the feast and the doors close. They return after this and they cry out at the doors, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the bridegroom replies, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now to this point in the parable that it just, it really breaks with custom. I mean, if some friends of the bride had come and they came a little bit late, wouldn't they still let them into the festivities? I mean, would it be like, sorry, you know, the door's closed, that's it. It's all over. Now, there might be some weddings that are like that. You're not getting into the wedding after the door's closed because we don't want you to disrupt the ceremony. But this is like, you know, a lot of the party and celebration afterward, and yet they're excluded from it. But I think this is where... In Jesus' parables, there's usually some moment of shock value on purpose, and we're supposed to learn from that moment. Jesus is teaching a principle through this little story. And the dialogue mimics that of what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, where those who say, didn't we do all these great things in your name? They say, Lord, Lord, and meanwhile Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you. The point is this. You don't enter God's kingdom on your own terms, in your own way, on your own timetable. When the Lord says it's time, it's time. And there is no second chance after that. You can't respond to the call after it's already been made and finished. Let me make this really plain. When you're dead, you're dead. And there is no second choice. There isn't a second chance after death. And after the Lord returns on that great day of wrath, so it will be the same. These bridesmaids had not participated in the bridal procession. So in truth, they were not attendants to the bride. They, in form, beforehand, pretended to be attendants to the bride. But in reality, they showed themselves not to be attendants to the bride because they weren't ready to perform their function in the ceremony. And so the bridegroom knew them not. Jesus then finishes this by giving us the lesson, Watch, for you do not know the day and hour. There it is again. Watch. Look out, for you don't know the day or the hour. What do we learn from this? We just reiterate these. There's going to be a delay until the bridegroom's coming. Jesus' return may seem delayed from our perspective, but we know that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Jesus is coming back exactly as it is determined by God the Father. And during this delay, there is opportunity 
for other individuals who are not at the present moment ready or prepared to become ready and prepared. The good news is, as we wait for him to come and look forward to his return, the good news in the meantime is there's still an opportunity. The door is still open right now. And people can come to know Jesus. It's time, the time to prepare for his arrival is now before he comes, because once he comes, it will be too late. The wise virgins are a picture of readiness while waiting. The having the necessary stick to to hold on no matter what the delay is. They're prepared to wait no matter how long it takes. The foolish ones, on the other hand, are shown to be unprepared. They make a show of being prepared, but when it comes time to holding a lamp, they have no fuel to burn. Again, it reminds us, it's not enough to have just some short enthusiasm for Christ, or to play the game of church, or to make a few attendances, or to go through some of the motions, or buy a Christian t-shirt, or put a fish on the back of your car, or any of the bumper sticker, or whatever else the case may be, you know, wearing a golden cross around your neck. Any of these things, you can look the part, you can be holding a lamp, but meanwhile have no oil, be not really truly prepared for the coming of Jesus. It reminds me of the parable of the sower. Remember, there are some of the seed that fell on certain types of ground, and one of those, the seed sprang up right away, but then when the sun came out in the heat of the day, it just choked the plant out and it died. There are others that were choked out by the cares and concerns of the world. MacArthur says, a torch without fuel is obviously worthless, and a profession of faith in Jesus Christ without a saving relationship with him is infinitely more worthless because one is left in spiritual darkness. You see, fool, the foolish women in this parable are representative of all those who hold to a form of godliness but are void of spiritual life and power. Their faith is dead, not being demonstrated in works, James 2.17. You might even say that they, like their lamps, remained in darkness. i read a quote from David Platt. This is excellent. It's clear then that the kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply respond to an invitation. All of these bridesmaids had done that, so to speak. Similarly, the kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply make a confession. Each of these bridesmaids would have said that they were part of the bridal party. Their cry in verse 11, as they stand outside the wedding feast, sounds eerily similar to the cry of Matthew 7. We also need to keep in mind that these bridegrooms or bridesmaids were not indifferent to the bridegroom. This is a happy occasion that they were glad to be a party of. But the kingdom of heaven is not for those who merely express some affection. Positive sentiments toward Jesus won't be enough on the last day. Some people will look like followers of Jesus. They may have responded to an invitation, made a confession, and expressed some affection toward Christ, but they will not endure to the end. The issue is not what you did a long time ago, but right now, in your heart, amid the difficulties and inevitable trials that are sure to test you, are you trusting Christ in the present? When Jesus comes, you won't be able to depend upon the readiness of others. It will be, are you in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we're each personally accountable before God. We cannot use someone else's oil. Well, God's blessings extend far and wide, you cannot depend upon someone else's repentance and faith. You must repent and you must believe. And the time to prepare is now because you're not guaranteed another moment and you don't know when Jesus will return. For when he comes, if you're in him, you'll have the deep joy of accompanying him into the fullness of his kingdom. Right now, while the gate is narrow and the path is narrow, the gate is yet open to you. That's the good news. It's open right now, yet a day is coming in which the door will close. It's akin to what happened in the days of Noah. For many years, Noah preached righteousness. We're told that he was a preacher of righteousness, described as that way in Hebrews. And he built an ark in obedience to the Lord. It took him over 100 years to build it. And it's fascinating to note that when Noah and his family and the animals all go inside of the ark, that when it comes to the closing of the door, the Bible is very clear here, God shut the door. God shut the door. Now, note this with me. I want to finish with this thought. When the door was shut... Consider the perspective of those inside the ark and those outside the ark. For those inside the ark, the door being shut was the most blessed reality. As the rains came and the floods rose, 
how delighted they were that that door had been shut. They were now protected. They were now provided for. They were now blessed. Outside of the ark was nothing but a horrifying cataclysmic judgment. Can you imagine those outside of the ark who perhaps were making fun of Noah while he built this tremendously huge massive boat? Now as the rains pour down and the floods rise and the door is shut, how many of them do you think just wish for one second to go back to when the door was open, that they could have entered into the ark? Now as they struggled above the waves and were taking their last breaths before passing away. That great, tremendous judgment. That moment, recognizing there is no hope for rescue anymore. The time is past and now there will only be a fearful final judgment. As horrible as it would be to drown to death. The judgment yet to come, the second death, will be much worse. Will be much, much, much worse. When the door to the wedding feast closes, it will be simultaneous to what, it will be similar to what happened with the ark. The greatest torment for those shut out of everlasting paradise and handed over to everlasting destruction. That's what they will receive. The door for them will be shut to joy unspeakable around God's throne. The door will be shut to blessed union with Christ and the church forever. The door will be shut to heavenly rewards given to the saints. For those who aren't in Christ, who aren't found ready at His coming, they'll be shut out of the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of their sin will be exposed. Books will be opened. It will be recounted. All of their wickedness will be perfectly judged. All of their wrongs will be righted. What a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth that will be. And it will go on. And on forever. Yet, that same day and that same closing of the door will be the greatest delight for those who are in Christ. For they're going to be shut into everlasting paradise. The door will be shut at last to all pain and all sorrow and all doubts and all fears and all sickness and all disease. All sin shut out forever. On that day, those who suffer for Christ's sake will receive their everlasting heavenly reward. They'll see just how small a thing it was to suffer in this life in comparison with the full, sheer weight of glory that will be theirs with Christ throughout all eternity. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Are you in Christ? When the door shuts, will you be with Jesus? Or will you be in a place of everlasting torment and judgment? I close with words taken from a hymn from James Montgomery Boyce, who was still working on this hymn when he passed away, which beautifully summarized this text. We do not know if Christ will come when life is rough or steady. We only know that Jesus said, keep watching and be ready. Keep watching, for Christ will appear at night or some bright morning. Like lightning flashes through the sky without a moment's warning. Be ready when the Lord descends to render final judgment. When men shall rise to heaven's joy or suffer dreadful torment. So watch with care and grace abound. Get ready soon to meet him. That when you hear the trumpet sound, you'll be prepared to meet him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We are so thankful for passages such as these which furnish deep and resolute and sober warning. There is so much joy to be had in Jesus. The joys are forevermore. The joys are such that this world can't contain them. So you have created in your wonderful providence a new heavens and new earth where throughout all eternity we'll be able to enjoy the joys that are be had at your throne. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died and rose again. That in him we have our sins forgiven. We can be granted perfect righteousness and be seated with you one day. Lord, I pray that those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ would deeply rejoice in this. And that our attention would be drawn all the more upon our Savior and Lord Jesus. And that he would transform our perspective of this world Help us to not become distracted with things and cares of this world. Help us to simplify life and think more about Him and therefore be more useful to His kingdom and to His service. 
Lord, for those in this room or those who can hear my voice that don't know Jesus, I pray that the solemn reality of the coming judgment would hit them square between the eyes and that while the door remains open, that they would be granted repentance and faith, that they would turn with their whole hearts to Jesus, that they, it wouldn't suffice to just say a couple of words that they don't mean, but that their hearts would scream the desire of having Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would begin relationship with Him that would extend throughout all of eternity, that they would find the joy of being rightly related to Him. Lord, we pray that You would save them for Your glory. We know that this is only possible by Your free, unmerited favor, Your tremendous grace. We thank You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.